The reading of the scriptures uh, this morning is Psalm 19. So I invite you to uh, hear uh, the word of the Lord publicly read, reading Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiworks. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All of us uh, know uh, that uh, God reveals himself. Uh, and it's not something that we can be passive about. We can't be neutral. When God does something for us, we can't just say, you know, no big deal. We must engage. We must be active. Because divine revelation demands from us a response. And David shares his response in the text this morning to inform us as to how we should respond to a measure of God's revelation. David uh, sees uh, the glory and the power of God in two aspects of Revelation. Uh, the first, uh, the creation. God reveals Himself, as you know, in nature. Uh, and in nature, uh, God speaks to us about His power. Uh, and that is the subject of the first uh, six verses. Uh, oftentimes, the uh, second volume of God's revelation is referred to as His special revelation in Scripture. And that is the subject of verses 7 to 11. And then the critical point, David responds, verses 12 to 14. Uh, revelation is about him. He does what he must do. He responds to God. Again, I remind you that uh, his response uh, should inform uh, our response. Uh, I personally uh, speculate, notice I said speculate, uh, because uh, we do not know for sure that David is perhaps on his way 
uh, to worship God. And on his way, he encounters the majesty of God in the creation, and then, of course, uh, even greater still, the majesty of God in special revelation, and uh, it presses him to respond aright. I say this, again, because of verse 12, I let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. He comes to worship. He wants his worship to be internal, uh, meditations of his heart, uh, obviously external as he speaks words of praise, and that God would be accepting of uh, both. Uh, it is uh, certainly a powerful application to us. Uh, on uh, Sunday mornings, do we awaken and think about God's creation, his revelation in Scripture, and do we, in a measure, tremble perhaps that we go to the public worship of God and that we want our worship to be acceptable? It's, it's a powerful invitation to respond aright. Well, verses 1 to 6, creation reveals the power of God in nature. Uh, David uh, uh, says in verse 1 that the heavens tell and, and declare the glory and power of God. It is... Uh, the reverse of all other civilizations uh, that worship nature and have their own creation epics. This is our creation epic. And we worship the creator and not the creation. Uh, when we encounter God every day in the creation, it should provoke us to worship to acknowledge God's power and his blessings upon us. Uh, here, uh, David uses a, a very well-known figure of speech, personification. Uh, he gives personal aspects of life uh, to the created order because nature is repeatedly and universally speaking. Notice speaking to us of the divine majesty of God. Again, verse 1, telling of the glory of God. Day to day, verse 2, pouring forth speech, and night into night, revealing knowledge. He's personifying nature as speaking of the greatness of the Creator. Because in every aspect of the creation, God stamps His glory. He is telling a story of His might and His power. As we encounter that, we should respond in worship. Throughout the day and night, information pours forth. Of course, the world is ascribing it to whatever, evolution, some false creation epic. We know, we know otherwise. We know differently. Uh, because we hear nature, what it is saying to us. Uh, the day and night, a merism continually pouring forth information. The volume is constant, and the sound of it uh, is unending. It's like our uh, oft-repeated refrain, a picture is worth a thousand words. When you encounter nature, it is a picture that is worth thousands upon thousands and thousands of words telling the story of the majesty of our God. It, it continually tells that story. 
It is a witness to us every day. It is, uh, to use uh, perhaps a bit of a strange word, perspicacious. To us it is clear. We look at nature and we know. We know that God was in it all. And there is no place that that story is uh, not heard. Because God is revealing His glory. Uh, the word uh, line in verse 4 is a survey metaphor that speaks to ownership. That God not only created the world, but He owns it all. And the evidence in nature has no boundaries. It's everywhere. Paul alludes to this psalm in Romans chapter 1 in a very important text. Romans chapter 1 in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The context is the witness of God in nature that renders all men guilty and without excuse. Of course, we know that many refuse that witness. Uh, verse 18 of Romans 1, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They see it. They hear the story. They cannot run from it. It is so ever-present. But they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Uh, we, we sometimes uh, get hung up on the false notion uh, that how can God hold uh, men responsible, the lost accountable who've never heard? Well, the point of the creation epic is that they have heard. The witness is everywhere. They encounter it every day. Uh, but they do what the unrighteous uh, always do. They suppress it in unrighteousness. Uh, again, Paul says they've heard. They know, but they suppress the truth. Uh, beyond alluding to uh, Psalm chapter 19, uh, the Apostle Paul quotes the psalm uh, in Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 18, as to something that is even more profound, that is the universal witness of the gospel. Romans chapter 10, in the 18th verse. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Notice the answer to the rhetorical question. Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Uh, the effectiveness of nature in revealing the glory of God in the 19th Psalm is a type of God's revelation of Himself in the Gospel. The greater antitype is the Gospel taken to Israel by the apostolic company. And Paul is condemning the Jews for not responding to the Gospel because of its effective witness uh, in the missionary journeys of the apostolic company. Certainly, it's the story that men hear 
about the power of God in nature, but they also hear about the power of God in the gospel. And they are to respond. And to not respond is uh, to be likened uh, to the ungodly who suppress the truth of God. Uh, Israel knew and they heard. And Paul was a testimony to that. And so they are without excuse. Uh, Paul now does, uh, beginning in the latter part of verse 4, he, he turns from a specific element of God's revelation uh, in the Son. Here again, he personifies the nature uh, with the Son as a bridegroom or a mighty athlete coming out of his tent that brings light and life uh, to all. And the Son does that every day as a witness to the power of God in creation and the power of God in providing light and warmth. Every day the Son is a witness. There's not a day that goes by that the Son does not witness to the power of God. It's essential to life. Every aspect of life. Photosynthesis. On and on bringing warmth. I one day tried to calculate uh, uh, the production of energy of all of the power plants in the world. Coal, gas, nuclear, they have no comparison whatsoever to the mightiness of the power of God in the sun as a principal actor in revealing the glory of God. You vacate the sun from our world and we're dead. But God witnesses every day to His majesty, testimony to His common grace and goodness, even to the lost, the goodness of God. And again, men suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Well, as we worship God, ancient religions worship the sun. I love the story of the Egyptian sun god, Ra. Ra Ra fought uh, darkness and appeared victorious every morning. It's a perversion of the words of Psalm 19. If you will, a copy of Psalm 19, uh, because it's not Ra, the sun god, It's God bringing the Son as a witness uh, to His power and His glory and giving us warmth and life. Uh, Of course, you and I know the story from the book of Exodus. God defeated Ra. Let's turn to uh, the book of Exodus in the 10th chapter. Uh, Of course, God did not literally defeat Ra. There is no Ra. There is no sun God. There is but the one true God but to defeat the gods of Egypt uh, that are no gods. God places His majesty uh, in display, defeating all of the gods uh, to show that He is triumphant and worthy of our worship. Uh, Exodus chapter 10, again, reading verses 21 to 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and there was thick darkness in all of the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone arise from his place for three days. 
except for the children of Israel. They had light in their dwelling places. God displaying the majesty uh, to his, uh, his children. Uh, again, God defeating Ra, uh, or at least displaying to the Egyptians that their gods were false, that they should be utterly rejected because of God's power in nature. The Greeks worshiped Apollo as the god of enlightenment, riding his chariots across the sky to light the world. Greek culture has been eclipsed by divine revelation. Because there is no Apollo. There are no chariots giving light to the world. There is the sun that God has created greatest power plant that could ever be imagined, giving light and light. We worship the God who created the sun because it reminds us each day of his grace. I, I thought about this in a measure of all of us encounter difficulties in life. Sometimes we get discouraged. Uh, anxious, uh, maybe sometimes uh, depressed. I mean, I don't know. Uh, but there is there's an antidote that I will offer for your consideration. Wake up before dawn. Watch the sun rising. Because God is telling you that he has power. That he can fix whatever is wrong. And that's the hope of the Christian. And the Son is a witness every day telling us. And if on that day that you go outside, ladies and gentlemen, you don't see the sun rise up, give me a call and I'll come over and we'll be depressed together. But it will not be so. It will not be so. Because God has ordered the creation to tell that story on each and every day. And we should, we should hear that revelation and see it and pause and give thanks to God for the grandeur of His glory and the greatest power plant of all time in providing for us. Illustration of this in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and 26. He tells His followers, you, don't, you know, don't be anxious. I understand there's a lot to be anxious about in life. I mean, I understand that. And so, Jesus gives a story from nature. If you will, he follows Psalm 19 as an analog. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he says, are you not worth much more than they? story from nature. The punchline is the power of God. And it's the sons of God that we are worth much more than the creatures of the creation uh, that every day God feeds. The witness, the power of God in nature. Beginning in verse 7, uh, David shifts uh, to the special revelation of God in Scripture. Here, God tells his story as well. And like nature, it too is perspicacious. 
but it speaks to us in a much more powerful way of God's ability to save, to work in the hearts and minds of his people uh, to affect salvation. Very interesting in this, uh, uh, this part of the psalm, there are six references to verbal revelation. God reveals himself generally in nature. It speaks to the power of God, uh, but he speaks powerfully uh, as he reveals himself in a personal way in Holy Scripture. Here we, we read the word law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and judgment. And all testify to us that God reveals himself in the written word. More importantly for us, it's transformational. It changes our lives. And again, that's why we should respond. Uh, to the power and the presence of God in Holy Scripture. Uh, we should respond aright and give serious uh, due to David's response. Uh, as we look at nature, we, we should know that we are much more than the creatures and God provides for us special ways. Uh, but when we come to God's special revelation, it changes our lives. And uh, one way that we should respond is to bid God to accelerate that change. Uh, to make his presence all the more evident in our hearts and all the more evident that we might be witnesses to the world. Uh, the power of God to change. There's no other power that can change the heart. Uh, mankind has uh, every list and uh, every organization so that men can reform themselves. They can reform the outer man, but not the inner. Here is where God excels. He changes the heart, which affects the outer. Men can go to all types of seminars and learn, uh, again, practices and different regimens in life. God invades the heart to change it in his word. Uh, we have this uh, in the effects that uh, David tells us about. Uh, that revelation creates. It's a power that changes us. Uh, remember uh, the words of our Savior in John chapter 6, verse 63. The words that I give you, Jesus said, are spirit and are life. Life-changing power. It's a powerful invitation to read and to study the Scripture because it is life. Like the sun is a power plant to create life and warmth. The Scripture is the greatest power plant in all of the world to change our hearts. And one way that you can respond to that is to read the Scripture, to meditate upon the Scripture, memorize the Scripture, making continual application. Because again, revelation demands a response. God manifests his power in the natural world. We should worship him. But God manifests his greater power in his special revelation. And we should respond in worship that God would accelerate the change of his transformation of our hearts. All other sacred books fail here. They cannot save. They cannot change the heart. 
This is where God excels. The Bible gives life, repairs life, fixes life, and sustains our spiritual lives. The words of the author of the book of Hebrews, chapter 4 and verse 12. The scripture is powerful. Powerful. It is able to open the soul. Again, the scripture is alive and active. You're not just reading a novel. You're not just reading a biography or history. You're reading words that are alive because they are the words of God and the words of God are creative and transformational to fix our hearts and our lives and our souls. Again, look at verse 7 of Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's complete. Errant. Inerrant, it lacks for nothing. Notice the effect. It restores the soul. The verb is literally to return. To return the soul. It's in the form of a participle stressing continuous action. It's something of an analog to those favorite words of Psalm 23. Restores my soul. He makes my soul come back to God, makes it pristine. In the words of Augustine, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O God, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. Returning to God. Coming back to God. I will tell you that in all of the world, there is no word save God's special revelation that can restore the soul. I'm always amazed that every day on the television or in the written word in the newspaper or magazines, we're reminded of a health crisis. We want health care. My friend, let me tell you what we really need. We need someone who can repair the soul and fix it, and only the word of God can do that. We need a revival of the importance, the singularity, of the fact that the Word of God is alive and powerful, it can fix the whole soul. It's a great illustration of this in, in warfare. I remember a number of years ago uh, reading a book by William Manchester, who was uh, a Marine in the Second World War, some of the most violent uh, battles ever in the South Pacific. So much so that when he left the service, he was plagued and anxiety, uh, wake up at night, uh, everything seemingly was uh, overturned for his uh, soul and he could not ever come to a sense of peace. And one day he planned to go back to all those battlefields, to revisit them and to walk the ground. And in doing so in a strange way in his book, Out of Darkness, the grip that the war held upon his soul left him. He found a measure of peace. Recently, I uh, read a book uh, about a tanker in the Second World War that was uh, extremely gifted in terms of his ability to target enemy tanks. The last great battle was in the German city of Cologne. Uh, and he was engaged in tank-to-tank -tank combat. But a strange thing happened in the battle. There was a 
a sedan that appeared on the battlefield and uh, he engaged that sedan for whatever reason. He thought it was a fleeing German uh, a politician, didn't pay it any thought until after the war was over. Heard a story that there was a combat photographer present on that very battlefield filming that battle and he wanted to see it and he did. As he watched the battle unfold, he was gripped by the terror that he was responsible for killing a young woman that was in that automobile. And at that point, like Manchester, the terror of the war gripped him. He couldn't sleep at night, always irritable, always anxious. He sought for peace, but it eluded him. And so he did something similar to what Manchester did. Went back to Germany. Went back to the city of Cologne. Met his nemesis, who was a gunner in a Nazi tank. Traced the family of the young woman that he had killed went to her grave, placed flowers on the grave, went to the church, lit candles, made so that on every anniversary of her death that flowers would be placed upon her grave. And at some point, these acts of contrition, the power that the war had on his life left him. You and I have that not by retracing old battlefields or going to old haunts. We have what? We have the Scripture. We have the Scripture, the Word of God, that restores the soul. Favorite overpowering verses of the coming of our Savior. Isaiah chapter 53 Verse 6, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. He vanquishes our guilt because He took our iniquity upon Himself. Verse 5, and by His stripes we are healed. It's as if Guilt owns us. And then we read these majestic words of God's special revelation. And the guilt leaves. And forgiveness owns us. The greatest treasure in my mind in all of the world, we're forgiven. Because of the grace of God. And the scripture tells that story. The marvels of the grace of God in divine revelation. The psalmist goes on to say in verse 7, the testimony is true. It means that the word is reliable, trustworthy, and faithful. It's not like so many of the promises we hear on the television or newscasts. The word of God is faithful. God is faithful. He's reliable. We can trust Him. We can wait upon Him. We can look to Him. And He will never disappoint. 
I'm not saying the answers will come immediate, but again, God is faithful to his people. Great words of the scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. God is faithful. The faithfulness of the divine revelation and God always go together. We'll never disappoint. The effect is to make, the psalmist says, as he moves from God's revelation to the effect, it makes the simple wise. The simple person is the inexperienced person, the naive person. It conjures up in my own mind the, the, the young person. who doesn't know because he hasn't experienced so many things in life. He's not aware of oftentimes how life works. But the Scripture can give him that experience and make him wise. It's a manual to teach him all of the skills necessary to be successful in life by trusting and waiting upon God. I'm always amused. A day goes by that we don't hear about education in our culture. I'm not decrying that. I, we all need education and better teachers and on and on, but it's seemingly an unceasing story. Would that we would hear the story that God provides real skill in life and that following what He tells us in Scripture, you will come to the end of your days and God will say, you are blessed because you lived the Scripture. The greatest educational event in all of life that is transformational to give us wisdom and the fear of the Lord. And that, my friend, is true success. True success. In verse 8, the precepts are right or straight in contrast to that which is crooked or unclear, so much so that they cause the heart to rejoice. I sometimes find myself, why am I listening to the news? All it does is depress me. Turn it off. Go to Scripture. It's full of good news. Causes the heart to rejoice. Makes us joyful. In a world of bad news, there's only good news in the Scripture. That Christ can heal and fix the soul. The word of God is like a welder that comes to cracks, pieces that are broken and perhaps separated. And he welds uh, the cracks in the soul and makes everything right and provides healing. The power of the Word of God to fix what is cracked and broken, what is grown apart. That the Word is pure, unadulterated, without imperfection. And it, the psalmist says, enlightens the eyes. The word uh, enlighten is uh, the verb to, to give light in the sense of is continuous. Reminds us, does it not, of the creation? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3. God says, let there be light. And there was light. The word does to the heart, to the soul. It creates light. You might see and understand the majesty 
of God's provisions in Scripture. It enables the soul or the inner man to know God's provisions. Uh, and so John says of Jesus, John chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That men are born into spiritual darkness, and Christ is able to change that and bring light. John 1.9, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. That God comes to his special people, and gives light to the soul. We might see Christ in all of his majesty and respond to him in worship and praise, knowing that he has forgiven our sins, fixed our souls. I think uh, Paul is alluding uh, to this uh, text in the psalm of the enlightenment in Ephesians chapter 1. In the 18th verse. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance among saints. Enlightenment that the scriptures bring. And that we need our souls continually to be reminded of the power of special revelation that it enlighten us as to that which is true and sure. And I, I, I love what Paul adds, that we might know, not guess, not wonder if it is so or not, but that we might know what is the hope and the riches of the glory of the greatness of the power of God. Hope. You know, in a certain measure, so many people are hopeless. I read a tragic account in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. A town in the West. Small town. Six young people took their own lives, almost in succession. Because, the article never really says, but it, kind of shouts out to you, they just didn't have any hope. They lost acceptance with their peers or whatever. You don't have to say whatever when it comes to God's divine special revelation because it tells us of the hope of our calling and the riches of the glory of the grace of God. We live in a world that young people need to know that there is hope. Maybe their friends reject them, but God accepts us in Christ totally, irrevocably forgives us. We have acceptance with God. Greatest person in all the world. Friends may turn away from us, refuse us, not answer our phone calls. Throw away our mail. Not so with God. We are accepted, Paul says, in the Beloved in Christ. Powerful illustration of the gospel is needful in this world. Young people would know that there is acceptance with the only person that really matters. And God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit.
In verse 9, David says, to fear the Lord. It's again a figure of speech, a metonymy, uh, in which the cause is the revelation of God that provokes fear. It's clean. The word clean is very uh, interesting. It's used of the sacrificial animals uh, that were acceptable to God, uh, meaning that they could have no spot or blemish. Meaning that when we come to Christ, we are forgiven and washed clean. We have acceptance with God and forgiveness. Greatest possession, uh, I believe, in all the world. To know that you are forgiven by God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, power, Holy Spirit. Yes, we could, we could look at the past. Yes, we could recount them all. Yes, sometimes our memories plague us. I know mine does. But you always repair to that most special word. We're beloved. We're forgiven. Powerful story that God reveals to us in Holy Scripture. Lastly, the judgments are dependable. The effect, they make us righteous. The Greek translation is very poignant. It says we are justified. That most special word of the Protestant Reformation, justified, made right before God. Our guilt imputed to the Son, His righteousness imputed to us, by which we are declared not guilty before the supreme court of all of the world in the throne of God. What a possession contained for us in Holy Scripture. Ladies and gentlemen, I remind you, if that is true, and it certainly is, you have no court dates with God. You will never be asked to stand before the throne of God as to your innocence or guilt. You are declared not guilty. None of us are innocent before God, but because of His provision in the Gospel and Jesus Christ, we are declared one time for all time that we are not guilty. And we have no court dates with the Lord of glory. The last effects, verses 10 and 11, we have something greater than gold and sweeter than honey. They warn us and remind us of true satisfaction and wealth. The world is uh, always uh, bent as to how to make a better living and gain riches. Nothing at all wrong with that per se, but you and I in the Scriptures have the greatest of all possible wealth. Something that's more, more valuable than gold and silver and precious stones. And the story contained in God's divine revelation of Holy Scripture. Sweeter than honey. The Scriptures we can be satisfied with telling the story. The power of God in creation. The power of God in the scriptures. 
And now the power of God to deal with sin. Here is David's response, verses 12 to 14. He encounters this glory. What does he do? He responds. You have to respond. Every day we should respond to the glory of God in the firmament. Every day in reading the Scripture, we should respond to the majesty of the Gospel contained in Holy Scripture. And David responds. He prays. Revelation is perfect. He is not. He wants the Word to prevail in his life, not sin and presumption. He wants God to deal with his sin. The great power plant that can deal with sin, transforming his life, making him new. He wants his words and thoughts to be acceptable to God. He's going to worship. He knows how important it is to be accepted. His words and his thoughts, the inner man, and what the outer man prays and sings, that God would accept them. Oh, the greatness of the story of the vitality of public worship, that we should prepare our hearts on every Sunday beyond every day, but in the special event of the worship of God. Oh God, in your grace, may the words of my mouth and the meditations, my heart be acceptable. That the transformational power of God's revelation, that God would so work in our hearts that he would be pleased. And then David does what any of us can really do encountering God. He repairs to God. Oh God, my rock and my redeemer. It's the right response to Revelation. I remind you once again uh, that when you encounter God in Revelation and you do every day as the sun rises, and as a Christian you should encounter God every day in His Scriptures, and in a special way on Sunday, as we come together in that appointed time to worship, respond to right. Uh, God's transformational power uh, to deal with our sin uh, and to make us uh, acceptable in His eyes in terms of our meditations and the words of our mouth. That God would be pleased. The greatest person in all of life is the living God. And the heartbeat of our lives should be to please Him. And so it is when we respond as David responds. That our words and our hearts and our meditations would find acceptance in His sight as the true response of seeing God in nature and seeing God in Scripture. Let us... Uh, let us make David's response our response, not just in public worship, but in our acts of worship uh, every day. Uh, because creation reminds us God's glory. And Scripture changes us from glory to glory. And so we should respond every day, every Sunday, in his worship.